I've shared this before. Um, having lived in Ukraine, you're talking about the, the influence on, um, on, on the world that this event has and, and how uh, even misguided people celebrate things uh, in Ukraine. They have a tradition on this day, although I'm, I'm not sure it's today. Their, their Easter is a, a different day. Orthodox Easter is a different day, usually from Catholic Easter. Uh, but they, they have a celebration sort of thing that they do. Uh, and that is on, uh, on, on Easter, they say, Jesus was Christ, which is uh, Jesus is risen. And then, uh, then someone will reply, Istina on Christ, which means indeed he is risen. Now, this is, what's interesting about this is this is how they say hello. So you walk down, instead of saying, you say, Jesus was Christ. That's, that's hello. An atheist on Easter will come up to you, Jesus was Christ. <laughs> it's just odd. To, to, you know, here's a, a stumbling drunk walking down the street who doesn't believe in God, and he'll say, Jesus is risen. And then another drunk atheist will say, of course he's risen. That is the influence of Jesus Christ on our world. What an amazing thing. We're talking about, uh, in this series, how dead men tell tales. We've talked about Joshua and Caleb threatened for their life because of their belief and hope. And, and how insecure that, that makes some people. And we've talked about Lazarus. And, and it is interesting that, that Lazarus is kind of the second, that that plot of Lazarus was really the secondary plot. They, they first got together. And this event takes place months before they actually, uh, before they actually crucify Christ. That, that event was... Uh, several months in planning. We've talked about how we go above and beyond sometimes. We, 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 we do things we never could imagine. And, and, and sometimes we've talked about man's creative ability that, that we, we figure out, we're going to figure out how to accomplish something. And sometimes that that is a, uh, a thing that people do that they, they reach new heights of danger to themselves because of their ability to create and create new destructive ways. Sometimes we achieve these greats or lows, whichever you want to look at, because we forget things. We forget where we've been and what we've done and, and we, um, we cover the same ground and maybe worse. Edison and his thousands of attempts at numerous things, actually. We talk about the light bulb, but he, had, uh, he was trying to figure out how to make batteries to store electricity. Edison has over a thousand patents, but, but this, just this one. Um, he was working on this, and, a, and a, another man comes into his office, and, and he has just different prototypes lined up all over the place, he had over, at one point, 9,000 
And, and the guy came to him and says, this seems like a waste of time. How do you, how do you deal with 9,000 failures? He's like, oh no, I have no failures. He says, uh, I now know 9,000 things that don't work. <laughs> right? he, he had to be able to forget, in other words, a failure and move on to, to something and that's how he accomplished what he did. Unfortunately, sometimes these, these, the, the forgetting of the past, it, it produces bad consequences. Much like we're going to see with these men. I remember, uh, and I, I know I've told some of you this story before, but uh, when we would come back uh, to the States, we would visit the various churches that, that, uh, that supported us. And, and uh, I had two buddies that I went to college with. They were both in Louisiana. And they were. Uh, if you've been to Louisiana, you, it's one of those states where there's no straight roads to where you want to be because of all the bayous. You know, if you get lucky and there's a bridge, that's wonderful. But, but you, you sometimes, and, and, and these two, I, between their morning service, I did one in Monterey, and it was all I could do to get to, to Crowley, Louisiana, which is down and over, uh, in time for their evening service, and I could, I could kind of do two in one day, and then that way I didn't have to spend a whole week in Louisiana. And uh, so I, it was, uh, what, must have been around 2011 or something like that, and, uh, and I, I'm looking at the map, I said, and, and my buddy, he goes, you go up here and over and down, that's how I have to get over. And I'm, I have an atlas, and this is now before smartphones, or before I had a smartphone, and uh, and I'm looking at the map, and I see this little gray line, and it goes over, and it connects from where I'm at in Monterey over to this highway. And I'm like, I do not have to go up and over, and I can cut off about an hour. And I get down. I drive to the, this road. It's about 10, 15 miles, so I'm into it now. Right? You're into it. Now if I do go up, I am, I'm late. There's no question. I get up there. It's a levee. Have you, anybody ever driven on a levee road? Am I the only one in here? You want to talk, you, the word washboard comes to mind. I'm in a minivan with a, a family of six, no, five at that, at that point in time. And there's five of us on the levee going, for ten miles. I'm about one mile into it when I remember something. I've done this before in 2006. In another minivan on the same levee. I've done this before. I've seen the same gray line and decided, and it didn't dawn on me. I have forgotten this wonderful experience. We forget things and, and we outdo ourselves. <sighs> what does this have to do with anything? Well, we come back to these men. These men who have thought, and I assume because of the way the Bible tells the story of Lazarus, that they did not succeed or thought better of it or whatever, that Lazarus did not get killed. There are just a number of internal things that, that, that seem to indicate that. In the, the week leading up to his death, he goes to Mary's house, and, and, and she is the one here, I assume, in thanks for what he has done for Lazarus. She's wiping his hair with her, or wiping his feet with her hair. 
and anointing his 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 feet. I, I assume that that is from joy at, at a brother being returned from the dead, that that he's still with them. That is an assumption. But we follow their genius, these men, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, and in their plan, they've already outdone the 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 Israelites who thought of stoning Joshua and Caleb. These men have thought about killing a man who's already been dead. I mean, that's impressive. And now, we're going to kill the man who raises people from the dead. We go beyond. We just forget and we come up with new ways to exceed our abilities. I want to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses uh, 37 through 40. I was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I thought it was interesting. These two statements. Last, last week we began his ministry, actually he's still in the ministry of John, talking about how, how he would raise up descendants from the stones. And now he's talking about how the stones will cry out. This, this guy keeps on talking about stones. And, and every statement gets more bizarre. Like the stones are not going to start yelling. What in the world? What are you talking about? This is bizarre. And I, I think that they have no idea what he's talking about again. How could rocks cry out? Is this to be taken literally? Well, that would seem to be absurd on its face, although we would point out that in the Bible donkeys have talked. So, I guess. But, I believe it is figurative, and in its figurativeness it would not seem so strange. The empty grave stands as unique in all of human history. Everyone seems to need an explanation for it. Now there's plenty of empty graves, but this one, this one is special in history. Everyone has to have an opinion on it. Whether you accept Christ or not, you have an opinion on this, this empty grave. It is the deepest hole. This empty tomb is the deepest hole in human history. Because for 2,000 years, people have been throwing excuses into it, and it's not getting full. This empty grave. The best one that people have is the first one. Matthew 28. The one that has stood the test of time for critics is this one. Matthew 28. The first excuse of the empty grave, verse 11. 
He says, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came to the city and reported to the chief priests the things that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, say, well, just tell them that the disciples came at night and stole away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll appease him and make you secure. That means if you fell asleep on d- duty, that was the death penalty. So they said, we're bribing you to tell the story. We've got to end. You just tell them the story and we'll, we'll see to it that you're not put to death. I'm not sure if they actually could back that up or if, if they ended up getting executed anyway. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And so this saying is commonly reported to the Jews until this day. And that's then. And we are still continuing in history. And this is the best excuse. No one's come up with a better one. Well, this is interesting, this excuse. The first thing that draws my attention to this excuse is the fact that they acknowledged it was empty. In stating this excuse, they have given up all pretense of explaining it as, no, Jesus is still in there. That ship has sailed. Someone who wants to say, oh no, he was buried. No. The first excuse of of eyewitness enemies is that Jesus is not in the tomb. That is something for which they must find an explanation. So all other explanations disappear. I want to talk about Jesus' response to conspiracy. Isaiah 57, or excuse me, Isaiah 53 and verse 7. We know this well. This is important. It says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent in front of its shearers. We turn to Matthew chapter 26 and see where this is fulfilled. Matthew 26 and verse 62 or one of the places, I should say, it is true, multiple places, before Herod, before Caiaphas, and Annas. Matthew twenty-six, sixty-two. The high priest said, Do you answer nothing? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered him, said to him, I put... You under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, it is as you say. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And this is all he ever spoke. He never opened his mouth in self-defense. And I think that's interesting. Why? Not here, not in front of Pilate. Numerous occasions he had the chance to to give a self-defense. 
but he did not. What a strange day today is. For us every Sunday. Every Sunday is a day to remember the death and resurrection of Christ. I want you to think about the oddity that we gather every week to commemorate a conspiracy that was successful. A conspiracy that was months in the planning. Now, now I can imagine celebrating something if they, if they failed and, and the victory of, of, the, of a failure. And Jesus got away again. But we come and we celebrate a conspiracy of people who didn't even like each other and successfully assassinating an innocent man. I want you to think about that in any other sphere of society that you live in. And how odd today is. How strange. And we'll get back to Jesus' silence in just a second because these come together. What is the track record of Jesus when he opens his mouth? What happens when Jesus speaks to people? They shut up and walk away. They don't have any answers. They drop their stones. They walk. They don't dare ask Him any more questions. These are the types of things that are surrounding Jesus whenever He opens His mouth. Jesus has to keep His mouth closed. If he is going to die, he has to shut up because he will skate again. Now, what did Jesus have to say? I want to read you a list that I've compiled from multiple sources of 21 things that Jesus could have said concerning the events happening right at that moment. I want you to think about your emotions as we go through this list. How you feel about these things. The trials that he's going through. And the number of illegal things that happened, 21 of them that I can count, possibly more. First of all, and I'll try to do these in order, the verdict was predetermined. They had already come up with the verdict. We know this because they've been plotting this for three months. The verdict is already there. Jesus was tried by chief priests. They were the ones that arrested him. You cannot be tried by the one who arrests you. It's a conflict of interest. Even under Jewish law. Now the Sanhedrin presented the accusation 
Under Jewish law, they were a jury. You cannot be tried by a jury. The jury hears the trial. The jury cannot act as prosecution. Bribery was involved in the arrest to Lazarus, to which he later confessed. That eliminates the entire trial. The trial was held at night, which is against Sanhedrin law. It must be at a time where there can be witnesses. And it was forbidden under their law to be held before the morning sacrifice. The trial was closed to the public, as we say, and we read that they were forced to wait in the courtyard. The trial was held before a high Sabbath or Passover, which is also illegal. They could not hold a capital crime trial before the Passover because it involved death. The indicting charge was changed, or excuse me, was submitted incorrectly. The charge of indictment was that he said that he would destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. However, what Christ said was, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. The indicting charge was not accurate. So it was not valid. A part of the trial was conducted in the house of the high priest, which is a conflict of interest. Number 11, at Annas' preliminary hearing, there was no evidence provided to support the indicting charge. And so by law, it should have been dismissed at that point, but they continued. He was beaten during the trial. He cannot be punished before a verdict. There is suborning of perjury and trying to coordinate witnesses. There is also conflicting testimony of those witnesses. Again, any one of these so far 14 things would be enough on itself to dismiss a case. We've gone through 14 things and it's still continuing In uh, number 15, the jury convicts on self-incrimination. Even what we read here. He says, see, we've heard it from his own lips. We have no need for a trial. That is self-incrimination. And even under Hebrew law, you could not convict, or under Roman law, you could not convict on self-incrimination. You needed witnesses that could corroborate the story. Once again, we have the Jews changing the charges. They change it again when they present it before Pilate. And see, their law, or what they were accusing him of, was not one uh, that could be Uh, guilty of the death penalty. So when they present it to Pilate, 
they have to present something that can be tried under Roman law. And that was treason. So they tried him personally on blasphemy, but then presented to Pilate the charge of treason. You cannot change. And this is now the second time that they've changed their uh, accusation. The guilty verdict was not unanimous. We know this from the scriptures. We know that there was one person that either dissented, Joseph of Arimathea, it tells us he was not consenting to his death. A capital crime had to have the entire Sanhedrin, 70 men, unanimous for death. And either he didn't consent to it at the time or they held it at night specifically to keep him away from the trial. I'm not sure which one. The entire process, imagine this. Put yourself in this place. The entire process from arrest to charge to execution took 16 hours. That is what's called a miscarriage of justice. And in fact, number 20, capital punishment was actually supposed to be a delayed sentence. It had to be delayed from verdict to, uh, to the actual execution by at least one day, just in case there was more evidence that came forward. But they have to get this done, and they have to get this done fast before the Passover, so they speed it up. And finally, the fact is, is that they overrode the verdict of both Herod and Pilate, who found nothing of guilt in Christ. The two authorities, both Hebrew and Roman, delivered a not guilty verdict, and he was executed anyway. 21 things. What do you think? As you read that list, what, what a great travesty of justice. We hear things in our news about travesties of justice all the time, and we, we get our blood boiling. Now go back to the fact that we are here today to celebrate this successful conspiracy. We are the benefactors of this great Great conspiracy. This is the lengths that they went to. The lengths that they had to go to because of their fear of this man. They didn't forget the law. These were lawyers. At every step they knew exactly what they were doing. And we see injustice and we get angry, especially of an innocent man. And even when he's dead, they're not quite sure of themselves. They have to place a guard in front of him. Because they're not quite sure that they're out of the woods yet.
And they've got good reason to be scared. Because they're not. And all of this happens for one reason. The same thing that compels their lies and their conspiracy, their insecurity, it's what keeps mouth of Christ closed. And that is this. The point of all of this is that there is this knowledge that there is victory and defeat. Christ sees the long-term thing. And He knows that by allowing Himself to be defeated, He's going to win. And so He has to stay silent through all of these things. And they have to risk everything because this is all they can do. But once they kill him, what can they do? Once you've killed a man, what can you do? Nothing. That's you pretty much done the worst that you can ever do to somebody is kill them. And so Christ comes back and says, Now what? What you got? I'm here. Well, I guess we can lie about it. That's what they're reduced to. There's a man by the name of H.L. Mencken. He was the guy that, he was a, an author, and he's an atheist. And he's the one that, uh, there's a thing called the Scopes Trial. And the Scopes Trial was about whether we were going to allow evolution in schools or not. And, and most people think that the evolutionists won the trial. It actually is not. The verdict was, was against the evolution side of things. Mencken wrote a book and he is the one that really changed the perception of the outcome of the trial. He was a very good writer. He's an atheist. But, but in one of his um, books, he wrote a, a, he wrote a lot of books. Um, he wrote a book called The Treatise of the Gods. And in there, there is this statement. It, it, it kind of stands alone. Um, he says, The historicity of Jesus is no longer questioned seriously by anyone. In other words, the, the actual existence of a man named Jesus, that's, that's not questioned really by anybody seriously. Whether they are Christian or unbeliever, the main facts about him seem to be beyond dispute. It is not easy to account for his singular and stupendous Success. Well, I suppose it's not if you're an atheist. How do we figure that one out? How did it come about that at one who, in his life, had only the bitter cup of insult to drink, should have lifted himself in death to such vast esteem and circumstance, such incomparable and world-shaking power and renown? Well, that's a good question. kind of begs the question, doesn't it? It seems to be certain... <clears throat> that many persons saw him after his supposed death on the cross. Let me interject. No. He was placed in a tomb. We know that from his first enemies, buddy. He was not supposedly dead. He was dead. This is the problem that we come up with. After his supposed death on the cross, including not a few who were violently dis disinclined to believe in his resurrection... 
And upon that theory, the most civilized sections of the human race have erected a structure and practices so vast in scope and so powerful in effect that the whole range of history shows nothing parallel. The idea is this atheist can't figure it out. How, how a man who <clears throat> lived an awful life of, of suffering and was allegedly killed somehow was so successful in producing something that changed the world, this guy can't figure it out. If you eliminate the one possibility that you dislike so much, then yes, you have no answer for it. And so I'll close with this. <clears throat> we are inclined to fear like anybody else. We've seen the unknown. Fear of the unknown. We've seen fear of death. And in our fear we look for those things to rescue us that seem most powerful to us. Some trust wealth. Some trust politics. Whatever seems to be the most influential and powerful <clears throat> forces of our, our world. That's what we turn to to rescue us. Fear of defeat compels people to embrace anything that advances their purpose. Because at all costs we must have victory. Constantine the Great, the liberator of Christians, celebrated as a saint, murdered his son and his wife, a very close friend, and numerous other peoples, and delayed his baptism till the end of his life so he could get the most out of it. I tell you that to tell you this. One of the great writers of Christianity was a man by the name of Eusebius. Eusebius is the reason you have this collection. He was a historian that, that analyzed which books were really written by apostles and which weren't and which were counterfeit. And he compiled the list that you have in your, in your Bible. We owe him great, he was a great historian. However, he was a close friend of Constantine's. He was an advisor of Constantine's. And so he is notably silent on a lot of the things that Constantine did. He justifies him even, in some cases. He says, well, he's basically a late bloomer. He had a, a long process to Christianity. And he softens the blow. Why? Because he had an ally. He, we had a, a guy who gave us victory finally. Victory for Christianity. And, and we're free. We don't have to be killed all the time. And, and so, so there was this desire to get victory at what cost? At sacrificing a little bit of self and your faith 
to gain something. And why? Because we are so afraid as humans, humans, of defeat. And yet, here we are today to celebrate a defeat. Say what? We are here to celebrate a defeat that produced a victory. We are so afraid to give up any ground. We are so afraid to be defeated in any way from a, from a, a personal cause or whatever it may be. That we will attach ourselves to something to try to advance something that we believe in. And so the challenge is as we leave here to take the lesson of the cross a symbol of torture a symbol of execution of the lowest criminal which has become something that people emboss in gold and wear on their neck. A thing of failure. The cross is a symbol of failure. Personal failure. You've let down your family, you've let down your friends, you've let down everybody. You're a low person if you've been crucified. And Christ takes this and He turns it into a symbol of triumph that... Constantine himself put on the front of his shields when his armies marched into battle. Christ did that in 300 years. Changed what the cross meant to the world. Do not be afraid of defeat. It is God who produces the greatest victories out of defeat. What things do I look to as my Savior when times are uncertain? My faith is abstract. And it doesn't, it's not concrete. It's not bedrock sometimes. It doesn't feel that. It's so, so abstract, faith. And it's easy for me to look to something that has more security. Something that I can touch. Something that I can understand. I can understand money. I can understand politics. I can understand these things. I can wrap my mind around them. And so they become attractive to me because faith in a God I can't see is sometimes difficult. What am I afraid of? It's all happened before. Whatever you're afraid of. Confiscation of property, are you afraid of that? Should be. Exclusion from society? You afraid of that? Should be. But guess what? It's happened before. It's happened before. And the church survived it. The church survived defeat. Thrived under it. And Christ tells us that tale. The body of Christ tells us that tale. The dead body of Christ tells us that even death itself can be defeated. 